0: We have Professor Tony Stewart here uh, for the second in his seminar series for this myth and myth term. Uh, we heard last week about stories of the peers and their background, and we hear more today about them uh, and I think their literary qualities. So the title is Subjunctive Explorations of Fictive Vaishnava Discourse, or subtitle, How to Be Serious About Erstwhile Entertainment for the Masses. Mm. Thank you very much. Well, sir. thank you. <clears throat> you want to flip that? So, uh, one day Allah was holding court, and Haji Gaji Muhammad, the apostle, took his seat. Now, by the way, let me interject. I'm, I have put up here the spellings as they appear in Bengali. Uh, so, phonetically, you know, if you know Arabic, if you know Hindi, I mean, you'll be able to finesse it uh, easily enough. But uh, I have a reason for doing that, which is uh, so that you won't automatically assume this is standard issue Islamic um, statements. <clears throat> so, a saint arrived from Makkah and Medina, and they began to discuss the condition of the thirty-two worlds. Koda held forth there in one court with all gathered. He considered the possible means for salvaging the eon. Hajigaji Sheikh Farid suggested one possibility: What if Monik were to appear as the son of Batur among Hindu clans? He would be known as the true form of Lord Narayan. In Jabon families, he would be known as Monik, the ruby whose power blazes forth. <clears throat> in the first edition of his survey of the peer literature of Bengal, titled Bangla Peer Shahid Takata, Girindranath Das separated the stories of the historical, or what he called the Oitihashik peers, from the imaginary, the Kalpanik. But in the second revised edition, the separation was dissolved in favor of a simple alphabetical listing, as I indicated last time, it is ironic that the stories of the erstwhile historical peers, such as Shah Jalal, <clears throat> have been highly unstable, being expanded, truncated, amended, uh, with entirely new tales added to the corpus over time. While the narratives of the so called imaginary or legendary, or what I'm calling the fictive peers, have remained remarkably consistent over the last five centuries. The decision by Dash to collapse his previous categories came about after criticism by Shukumar Shen, who argued that effectively all of the stories of the peers were myths in the pejorative sense of that term. On one level, his position seemed defensible, but I want to argue that there are two fundamentally different types of these stories. <clears throat> those that do correspond to historical figures with fabulation added, and those that are coherently conceived fictions. Now, last time the question was asked, how do we know they are fictional? There are three ways, and the presence of the fabulous is not necessarily one of them, though it always is included. <clears throat> uh, it's a fairly standard requirement. Uh, oh, come on in. yeah. Uh, it's a fairly standard requirement for hagiography. And as you recall last time, I count these tales as fictional hagiographies. The stories self-identify as, uh, there's a seat over here if you'd like to come in, yeah. <clears throat> the uh, the stories self-identify as Kata, Panchali, Kissa, Kahini, Jatra, Palagan, and so forth, so their self-description invokes genre where the stories of the erstwhile historical saints do not. Most of the specific place names in these tales do not exist, so much of the geography is fictional. The tales are often lumped together as qualitatively different from those of the historical peers. <clears throat> as one author, Radhamohan about uh, of uh, Bhattacharjo in the 19th century wrote in his work on uh, Shatupir, uh, <clears throat> and this is after giving encomia to uh, Brahmins and a whole uh, host of others, he says, in a custom manner I circumambulate and bow in full obeisance to Shatupir. This illustrious lord illuminates Makkah in the company of Mordhogaji, I fall at the feet of Kangaji, <coughs> who resides on the banks of the Janavi at the Tribani. I make fair greetings to Borokangaji, a village peer who gallops on his Arabian steed, which we just saw, <coughs> accompanied by a hundred tigers, just by remembering Shattopir as one relieved of all dangers. Uh, I might add every one of these. This is all but two of the Set of uh, fictional peers, and they're the only peers mentioned by name uh, in the opening of this text. Because the tales are fictions, romances, and I won't go through all the analysis of why they can reflect all the features of the Western category of romance, the terms of discourse for these narratives are literary. But as a subgenre of romance, they're hagiographical, which means they articulate a distinctly religious, bi- uh, religious biography. Uh, a biographical image, sorry, uh, that. composed of a life narrative, or the bios, that is coupled with a religious ideal. This is not a simple displacement of the history-myth distinctions that we talked about last week. And while Hayden White argues that all histories are fictions, we are arguing from the opposite direction. The fictions must be analyzed as such, with tools commensurate to their nature, but remembering that these fictional works themselves have histories. In a manner recognized today to hold for any literary text, the hagiographical narrative of the biosis fiction creates its own unique self-contained world that has an end and a purpose in itself. It is self-referential. These worlds are autotelic. The stories can be detached from and be read independently of context. That is, each text can yield a purely literary reading and all that classification implies. And many of the tales of the peers and Fokirs and Bibis and Puranis and Devis and Sadhus and Jogis circulate just like that. One might even primarily argue like that, uh, always, when delivered in Jatra or other performative modes. While the circumstances of a tale's creation and reception do impinge on that fictive world and condition it, it is primarily by relying on unstated presuppositions regarding the way the world works, the presentation of images rather than arguments that indirectly reflect the religious ideal, however, however vague and imprecise. But because they're fictions, these narratives cannot articulate a religious ideal in explicit terms of precise sectarian doctrine or even attempt to propose a systematic theology. Understanding why this is so will help us to uncover the work of these fictions, why they are and remain so important to people. <clears throat> In his study of genre, Todorov, following Northrop Frye, you want to click that, <clears throat> uh, argues that one of the most important inherent structural features of the fictional narrative, whether fable, parable, myth, epic, or novel, is that the narrative is never subject to the truth test. Truthfulness will not arise precisely because the texts are in some basic way literary. The narratives are neither true nor false precisely because they are fictional. This is quite a different proposition than the one one that is most often adopted, which is to say that because they're fictions, they're not true. We hear this all the time. Rather, they are neither true nor false in the ordinary world of things. The first authors of the fictional peer narratives, whether named or anonymous, had no need to declare the truth value of the narratives, though it is clear that they, too, sometimes wondered whether they were conveying something acceptable. For one will encounter the disclaimer, which is often heard among purveyors of Hadith literatures, no one knows for sure, or only God knows. Okay. Yet many of the narratives do contain overt, albeit unsystematic, statements about the nature of the divine, about occasional religious practices, and even hint obliquely at small features of what we would consider to be doctrine. But the worlds they create are autotelic, contained in and of themselves. What then is the nature of these pronouncements if they are not subject to normative truth tests? And what work are these fictions doing for those who circulate them? So, to illustrate, I want to look at a couple of episodes from the prolegomena of a much larger work titled The Tale of the Glory of Monik Pir, or Monik Pir Juhur Nama of Jayidi. The text is previously untranslated tale from an incomplete manuscript held in the library at Bisho Um And this is, by the way, a picture of Monik's uh, ordeals <clears throat> that he had to endure. Uh, the date of the manuscript is 1817, and from internal evidence, I would judge the composition to be not more than several decades earlier than that date, maybe as early as 1780 or 1790. Though the text is a fragment of a larger manuscript, it contains the discrete story of the descent of Badr, father of Monique Peer, at the command of Allah and the exploits leading to the birth of his more famous son. Now, <clears throat> before we plunge into the story, let me say, It's considered to be extremely bad form to just read what's projected on the screen. But it's the only way I can share the text with you comfortably. So bear with me as we go through. And what I've done is I've just very carefully selected out a handful of short passages so that you can get a feel for this text. The text translates out to about 50 pages um, to give you a sense of the size. So one day... Allah, Sahib, took his seat in his Darga and began to tell of the twelve saints. Then Koda asked, who would take up his words and go to the earth to spread my fame and glory? <clears throat> that one who will be entrusted with the burden of the world will, in the Kali age, descend as an avatar named Monik. He will speak to everyone about Haji Gaji, Muhammad, Rahim, Karim, Rasul, Pagambar, Honor, and Madar. Just then, Badr, servant of Allah, presented himself. Merciful and gracious Lord, I'll go spread the word with your blessings. Send me to earth if it pleases you. Allah, please give me my instructions now. Then Allah spoke of the many and great virtues of his servant Badr, but warned, if you fall into the hands of a woman, she will distract your resolve. Badr responded, of that I'm completely ignorant. Please explain. When he was finished, he again enumerated Badr's many qualities, and upon receiving this benediction, Badr begged his leave. Now, Badr was then outfitted uh, as a fakir, and when he put on his shoulder bag, Allah opened his mouth in a wide smile of approval, and the summoner, the Dawan, gazed at the three worlds therein. His faithful follower <clears throat> affirmed to Kota his commitment, then prostrating himself before Allah, He departed for earth. Badr drops down from heaven in Lahore, where he makes his way to Delhi, and then rapidly on to Bengal by the recitation of the incantation Dam Dam Madar, which is a Madari um, mantra which is used for uh, all kinds of things. So by the very breath of Madar is how we might translate that, enabling him to cover great distances in a moment. Now, there's a break in the manuscript, and you can see here where the scribe has tried to mend it, um, piecing it back together um, <clears throat> with the help of, uh, you know, greater powers. <clears throat> so we pick up the story of when Badr winds up in Shaptagram in southern Bengal, the place where Ganga Devi descended. At the landing god of Triveni, he found Rishis and Munshis performing tapas to get a vision of the goddess, but they'd been unsuccessful. So when the folk here addressed the crowd, would you explain to me why you're sitting here waiting? <laughs> Some said to themselves, what is this lowly shaved head talking about? Another said, we're undertaking austerities for Ganga. That's, what you know, what's it to you? <clears throat> Butter covered his ears and with his hands muttered, Allah, Allah, what an awful and stupid thing to say. He who in his mind chants, and the word is Jopi there, God is great, will turn the tide. Seating, seated in his aerial vehicle, is biman Koda will appear here, and with an unsullied heart, call Ganga. Pay heed to what I say, or better yet, let me invoke Ganga, and, you, and may you behold for yourselves. When Badr spoke these words to these spiritual practitioners, Padris, it was like pouring ghee on a glowing fire. So uh, they go on to disparage him further. Badr summons Ganga, who grants the sages their desired vision, But observing from his aerial car, Allah sends a white fly messenger down and commands Badr to capture Ganga and tie her up in his shoulder bag. He only releases her when she agrees to float stones from Lanka to Bengal to build a masjid on the spot. He then enlists Vishvakarma to do the needful. Then he heads to Chittagong, surfing the Ganga on his wooden sandals. Sometime later, back in Delhi, we don't quite know how he got there, <clears throat> he decides to uh, propose and marry, to and marry the, the Badshah's daughter. The king, however, uh, was not amused and uh, threw him in the dungeon, but he escaped. Badr vowed revenge, so he summons his army of tigers who carry away the princess Dubibi while she sleeps, reminiscent, of course, of the story of Kamar al-Zaman in the Arabian Nights. When she wakes... The Bibi quite naturally wanted an explanation. And Bada replied, listen carefully. The Badshah humiliated me in court, so I summoned all the tigers. By the way, there are 25,000 that showed up to help him uh, execute this. Uh, <clears throat> complaining all the way, I might add. uh Now you must marry me and all will be well. Du Bibi replied, well, I have one stipulation. In the Treta age, I was devoted to Ram Narayan. After that, I lived in Gokul as a cowherdice. In the home of Nanda and Nandini, I always fed uh, Krishna butter. Assume your forearmed form and show it to me. I presume that if you can do that, I will marry you. Bhattar instructed her, Bibi, please do as I request. Close your eyes and you will behold this very form. Bibi closed her eyes and experienced a thrill. Casting off his garb as a fakir, Bhattar assumed the form of Lord Ram. He held a bow in his left hand and an arrow in his right. When Lakshman held a royal parasol above his head, while Lakshman, when the daughter of the Badshabi held this, she was astonished. Then Badr in turn transformed into the avatar Kannai, holding the conch, discus, club, and lotus. He then held a garland of wild flowers and played the flute with Balaram at his side. He stood beneath the Kadamba tree, revealing himself to be Krishna. Rippling with pleasure, Bibi draped a garland over his neck, and the couple solemnized a Gandharva-style marriage of mutual consent. The night passed in the morning, the sun rose on the couple, and then now we find that the king is distraught about the loss of his daughter, and decides to go into the forest to look for her. The precious daughter of the king registered the king's retinue's entry and worried in her heart of hearts. Dude Bibi warned, O summoner, take heed of the looming shadow. For my sake, my mother and father have trespassed the forest. Here comes my father with his minister. Tell me quickly what subterfuge I can adopt to distract him. Badr quickly replied, Bibi, listen carefully. We too shall assume the guise of Ram and Sita. And so Badr became Ram, and Bibi transformed into Sita on his left. Two moons of incomparable beauty rising in the midst of the forest. When he witnessed this, the Badshah contemplated the prospects. What could be the reason we now see Ram and Sita in the forest? Speak out, my minister, explain this, for I am unable to fathom it. Where has Dudbibi disappeared, and who could have stolen her away? At that moment, Badar, the summoner, spoke, Close your eyes, and you shall see straight away. Listening to this instruction, the minister and the Badshah both closed their eyes, and the forms of Badr and Dudbibi were suddenly and surprisingly revealed. The Badshah queried, My precious daughter, what's this all about? Why did you leave the palace and enter the forest? Dudbibi responded, Daddy, do you not understand what's transpired? In birth after birth, Badr has been my husband and lord. He arrived at your court in order to marry me, but you not only wanted to insult him, but to bind him and throw him in the prison. Because of that mistreatment, the summoner retreated into the forest. He sent tigers to fetch my bed, and here in the forest, the two of us joined together in a Gandharva-style marriage. Consider this, and then do what you think is right. The Bajshah replied, My precious daughter, listen to my counsel. Marry in great joy, and come along with me. So a great joy arose, as if Raman Sita had arrived home in... Uh, Ayodhya, <clears throat> and I can take you through the etymology of how that becomes Ayodhya, if you like, at some point. <laughs> the, uh, it's a scribal issue more than anything. Uh, the Bacha then addressed the minister, please call the judge, the Kaji, and the Molas to perform a proper wedding ceremony as quickly as possible. It was only then that Allah, sitting in heaven, became aware of it, so he dispatched Haji Gaji Muhammad, Accompanied by Rahim Karim and Sheikh Fokran, the judge soon arrived near the city of Delhi. Badr as Murshid sat on a royal divan. The town's entire inhabitants thronged around to have a look at the Badshah's son-in-law. With a Stentorian tone, the Badshah called out, Minister, Minister, summon the judge quickly to make the wedding of my precious daughter official. So, Dud Bibi's mother, Don Bibi, set about making the customary ritual preparations consistent with their social status. After receiving permission from the Badshah, the Mola was called. Four Molas came, each carrying the Kitab Quran. Opening the Kitab Quran, they performed their calculations and concluded that it was the Kota's action that brought about this union. As the Badshah sat with everyone in the court, in the court gathering, the four Molas arrived from heaven. The legal affairs were settled. Now, after being distracted from his mission uh, by the beautiful Dudbibi for what seemed like ages, finally, one day, Badr just suddenly came to his senses, and he realized he had to leave, so he departed for Chittagong and instructed his wife to wait for him. She objected, but to no avail. So establishing himself by the edge of the river in Chittagong on the skin of a tiger, with singular concentration, the summoner recited silently the attributes of God. This is his zikr. He then repeated over and again the formulaic ilahi lehli. Now notice how this is spelled. This is uh, the kind of pigeon uh, Arabic that is often inserted. But everybody knows what it signifies. So which made Allah, sitting in his aerial vehicle, aware of this activity. Right then, Koda suffered a fit of sneezing. In his violent coughing, phlegm of camphor was expelled and dropped from his mouth into his hand. Picking up a lotus flower in that hand, he concentrated, and suddenly an insect, the color of gold, emerged from the lotus stem. Allah said, Go, tiny insect, I give you this boon. You will become the prince, son of Dudbibi, with the name Monik." <clears throat> Just at that time, Dubibi saw the blood of her period, but she brooded that her groom was not at home. One, two, then three menstruations ensued. Then a fourth. The point being, of course, that no one can question um, that she was not pregnant before he left, <laughs> which creates problems. Eventually, she goes to the after making arrangements. She goes to the river to bathe and cleanse herself after this last period. Meanwhile, Allah. Uh, seated in his uh, aerial car, looked deep in his heart of hearts and realized that Dudbibi was set to go bathe after her period. And Koda spoke, "Flower blossom, cross over the river to the place where the saint Badar is practicing his penance." Saying go, he threw the flower into the stream, and it floated on and on till it approached the city of Delhi. The was sitting on his tiger skin doing his penance, and right at that moment, at the command of Allah, he raised his hand and spotted the flower. The summoner was somehow very gratified gratified to see it, and he began to muse. Dudbebe used to dress beautifully with flowers, but what can I do? This flower is inappropriate for my chosen dress, but as I've said to you already, it would be beautiful on Dudbebe's outfit. And mumbling like this, he threw the flower back into the stream. By the graciousness of Allah, take yourself to the town of Chitgaon, which is Chirgaon. I swear by the name of the Maker that when Bibi picks up uh, a Kadam flower, the flower keeps changing its identity, by the way, uh, that it be this one and no other that gets into her hand. As Dud Bibi bathed, the flower floated straight up to her. <clears throat> Under the order of Allah to go to no one else, it was quickly lifted by the hand of Dud Bibi. When she looked at the lotus blossom, she experienced, experienced a bliss, but then sadly remembered that Badr was no longer at home. As if in a daze, Dudbibi quickly then returned to her quarters and had herself dressed in her various ornaments and jewelry. Even though it was at the very end of the day, she dressed herself immaculately, and her wavy hair fanned out just like a peacock's spread tail. Around her neck, she draped a necklace of coral called A Hundred Goddesses, and her face glowed like a full moon. She added more layers of elegant clothes and scented herself with expensive perfume and chewed 40 betel nuts with coquettish delight. I bet she was, actually, after chewing 40 betel nuts, (laughs) uh, feeling it. Over her breast, she pulled a tight-fitting bodice that dazzled like the glow of a rising sun. Bibi wrapped herself in a diaphanous shawl by the name of... uh, can't read this, a kuntatuti, 22 yards in length, but which was so fine that it could be compressed in its entirety in one's fist. When she finished dressing, the cheeky maid servant spoke. When the husband is not at home, there's no reason to dress up. When that woman whose husband is out of the country dresses up in her own home, the flowers groomed by the gardener drop without prompting. When a bee does not come to sip the intoxicating nectar of the blooming lotus, know that this is inauspicious, a woman in her youth wasting without a man. A woman in her youth lies awake for four watches of the night, listlessly passing the time, while her husband is in another land. So when the maids had gone on prattling like this for quite some time, <clears throat> Bibi was suddenly overwhelmed that her husband was not there. Now she was beside herself and wept inconsolably. Feeling hurt and deprived, Bibi retired to her private quarters. When she stretched out on her raised bed, she silently muttered three times, Eddallah. In her heart, she thought over and again of Badr the summoner, and that lotus flower Bibi pressed hard against her heart. Now, seated in the aerial car, Allah understood exactly why she did this, so he called out over and over again, Shaitan, Shaitan! At Allah's divine command, Shaitan presented himself. Go quickly, enter into Badr's body. Receiving the divine order, Shaitan wasted no time in going, and in the middle of the night, he entered the body of Badr to incite him. In their dreams, the couple looked at one another. In that year, their paths, and then there's a mangled uh, line in the manuscript, their clothed bodies pressed hard together, their faces were mouth to mouth, in their dreams that night, the couple embraced. They kissed, they hugged, and they coupled in sexual intercourse. And then, again, there's the illegible um, part of the manuscript. Was the lotus Beebe held in her hand? That's what we can salvage at that last line. <clears throat> the insect crawled out of the lotus and up her nostril, then seated itself in the hundred-petal navel lotus to take birth. Monic had entered Duke Bibi's womb. Bibi's sleep was interrupted and she began to fret. She groped frantically all over the bed then wailed, You came to me and then you disappeared, and this is the sad situation that transpired for these two. Then BB called out for her maidservant and began to tell her. The maidservant, of course, began to lecture her. You weep for no good reason. When you see what you see in dreams never comes true in reality, and so the night passed, the sun brought the dawn, and the postmenstrual bathing had healed Bibi. Completely. Now, <clears throat> soon, uh, Dhubibi began to show. So when she uh, gave birth, he was sec- the baby was secretly exchanged for a stillborn, by what appeared at least initially to be a, the same malevolent servant. Uh, her son Monik, though, was whisked away in a copper um, uh, coffin or, or uh, boat uh, prepared by Vishvakarma. Uh, in a manner that's familiar to everyone who's read hero stories. Floated on the waters, and then through the in- intervention of Allah, watching from his aerial car, was found and raised by a low-born garland weaver. After a number of years, Badar again recalled his wife and decided to return. And where he stopped for lodging and a meal was none other than the garland weaver's house, where his son, Monik, was being raised. And unfortunately, this is where the manuscript comes to a halt. <laughs> now, let me switch my glasses so I can see this a little better. Following Northrop Fry, it's easy to classify this as a romance with all the adventures of hero quest tales. And that category is sufficiently general that you're not doing violence to some indigenous Indic category by applying it, I think. And following Barbara Fuchs, uh, who has worked extensively on romance, we see the segmented narrative, the interruption of plots with yet another story, is what generates the tale, each episode producing what she calls a textual template for productive longing, which delays resolution, the delay itself paradoxically producing the text. The string of Botter's innovative responses, episodes that could be multiplied endlessly, operates according to what Catherine Bellsey calls situation creativity, each encounter allowing Botter to improvise new ways to demonstrate the boundless mercy of God, but often in unexpected and unconventional ways with unexpected outcomes. Because the basic outcome of the overall story is already known, suggests that the real point of the tales is not found in the plot, rather it is in the improvisations that occur within those frames. Now, We've argued that the fictional narratives of the peers are not subject to the truth question. But as Pierre Machery has argued, the autotelic nature of the fictional narrative does establish reflexively its own truth. And in that sense, each of these narratives is, of necessity, true, but according to its own standards. And the same could very easily be applied to myth, I think. In the case of the narratives of the fictive peers, This means that the worlds they inhabit are ones of the author's own making. They cannot portray directly the ordinary world of things, but can only mimic that world. These narratives can only give the impression of reality. Machary writes, and I quote, The autonomy of the writer's discourse is established from its relationship with other uses of language. Everyday speech, scientific propositions, By its energy and thinness, literary discourse mimics theoretical discourse, rehearsing but never actually performing its script. But in that evocative power, by which it denotes a specific reality, it also imitates the everyday language, which is the language of ideology. We could offer a provisional definition of literature, then, as being characterized by this power of parody, mingling the real uses of language in an endless confrontation it concludes by revealing their truth experimenting with language rather than inventing it the literary work is both the analogy of knowledge and a caricature of customary ideology this is from a theory of literary production and if you look at that you'll find it on page 59 Following Masheri further, fictional writing cannot then articulate theology or adhere to doctrine. Were to do so, it would become simply, in his terms, normative propaganda. Rather, it can only provide a simulacrum of theology or ideology, and it is precisely because of this misunderstanding regarding the nature of the text that these stories have been so routinely dismissed. They are asking of these narratives something no fiction can provide. For example, consistency with prevailing notions of theology, doctrine, and law. And as a result, relegate them to obscurity as the works of misguided individuals, or when they are feeling more charitable, as entertainment for the illiterate masses. But as Machery notes, when a fictional narrative mimics ideology or theology or doctrine, it inevitably provides a critique of that which it parodies. A finished literary work, since nothing else can be added, disturbs and reveals the gaps in prevailing ideologies. In the case of fictive narratives that include a religious dimension or are set in a religious milieu, we should read theology, cosmology, and so forth in place of ideology per se. And I think this is important. It's in this critique, both positive and negative, that we discover how these narratives function. And why they remain popular. It would be wrong to see in these inherent critiques an intentional articulation of an ideal world, that is, the world as it should be, because such a critique would in fact be offering an alternative to prevailing notions of cosmology and so forth that would remove it from the realm of fiction, making it participate directly in the discourse of theology, ritual, and law. Rather, the nature of this critique derives from the exploratory nature of the action within the narrative. The protagonists and others operate in a world of possibilities, an often indeterminate realm that does not offer a systematic statement of what should be, but in an inevitably partially constructed world, since no fiction can go so far as to dress systematically what a complete world should look like. Because fiction establishes its truth with images rather than philosophical propositions about the nature of reality, it is through the manipulation of images that we will discover the real nature of this subjunctive exploration, what I would call a world of what-ifs. Jaidi, the author of Badr's tale in the Monic Juhur-Nama, makes no attempt anywhere in the text to articulate an overt theology or cosmology. But in the piling up of episode after episode of Badr's mission, the contours of this subjunctive world begin to emerge, and a few examples of these, sometimes startling juxtaposition of images, should illustrate the experimental nature of the process. In the very opening lines, the author locates Allah in his, in his heaven, in his court, to which he enjoins Badr to undertake the mission to prepare the way for a new descent, the avatar, for the Kali age. His name will be Manik. The spatial orientation of heaven, on the order of a sultanate or mogul court, positions Allah in a manner not normally encountered uh, in the mainstream theological literature, not to mention all the references to his body, uh, his hand, his spit, and so forth. The invocation of the concept of Yuga avatar, avatar for the age, immediately signals the adoption of a fundamental but generic Vaishnava cosmology but it also just means to come down. That soteriological function of the Vaishnava avatar is appropriated for a message tailored to this last age of humanity. And, as is always necessary, the avatar redefines dharma, that is, morality, truth, and so forth, according to the needs of the age. That, of course, starts with the Bhagavad Gita. This avatar will speak to everyone about Haji, Gaji, Muhammad, Rahim, Karim, Rasul, Pagambar, and so forth. Notably, though, there is no explicit content. The names of these figures, and one concept, uh, Izzat, and i have puzzled over why that Izzat is in there, uh, are sufficient to invoke a new set of standards. But ones that are apposite to and must function in some way sympathetically to the pre-existing standards of Vaishnava, or a more generic Bengali religious sensibility. Later, when Manik is actually born, the author in his signature line writes explicitly, Manik descended, uh, Avatirnu, in the home of the gardener Madhu. There are no details explaining the concept, rather, avatar here is completely generic and hardly unique. Shattopir is named the Yuga avatar in several hundreds of manuscripts, and it is not unusual to see even Muhammad so characterized. And I uh, refer largely to um, the um, Zaid Sultan's uh, Novi Bansho, uh, text. Though badr is not declared to be the avatar of the age, but only the herald, because Monik is going to be the avatar of the age, when he meets Dudbibi, and she indicates that because of her prior birth, she can only marry some form of the god Narayan, he produces a serial revelation in her mind's eye that he is none other than Narayan himself, sporting forearms, then the avatar Ram with Lakshman, and her as Sita, and after that the avatar, and again the word keeps being used over and over, Uh, Krishna, while she is one of the cowherd women, or gopis, identities she's already declared for herself. It is perhaps no coincidence that the name Dudbibi, the lady of milk, we might gloss that, invokes the image of a gopi, and the name Badar means full moon, subliminally invoking one of the most common epithets associated with Krishna, or actually just about any deity. But the effect of this is profound. On the surface, the message seems clear enough. These tales, This tale of a Sufi saint incorporates Hindu deities and cosmological concepts into its narrative that signals not only a recognition of the legitimacy of these figures, but actually accommodates them into the operational structure of the universe. Now, I've chosen uh, to highlight uh, one example of the many that populate this text, indeed, of all the texts of these fictional peers and Beebys. But here, finally, is where parody really comes into play. I follow Linda Hutchins' A Theory of Parody. It's, it's uh, curiously about uh, 35 years old, but it's still, I think, about the best thing I've located. Uh, par- in, in her argument, parody, satire, and irony are often confused. Parody is a genre that functions intertextually by mimicry, a focused repetition of a prior discursive text. It doesn't have to be a written text, obviously that approaches its target in either a negative or critical way, or in a positive way by using it as a standard against which the uh, parodic text measures itself. Parody then is intramural, that is focusing internally on discourse. Satire, by contrast, contrast is extramural, which turns its critical eye to social or moral commentary, an extra textual target that in most instances is negative. Irony, however, is not a genre, it's a rhetorical tool, a trope, and it's critical to both parody and satire as the mechanism by which uh, those foci are executed. On the semantic level, irony can be defined as marking of difference in meaning, antiphrasis, which is brought about by superimposing semantic contexts, that is, what is stated versus what is intended. In semiotic terms, that translates into one signifier but two signifieds. So let's take a look at the marriage sequence. Yes, Hindu gods and goddesses are acknowledged, but they are not the supreme because even Badar Peer can assume their forms. Yes, Badar and Dudbibi embrace the classical Indian Gandharva style marriage of mutual consent but it's only validated when the mullahs perform the rituals to register it before God. Yes, the astrologers can calculate the proper time, etc. for marriage, and I actually trim some of this out, <clears throat> but the source of those calculations must be the Quran, and it's actually quite extended. They, they look like traditional uh, astrologers, and we can see this kind of uh, parodic, rippling, uh, parodic reading rippling through the text. So as a result, Bhattar Pyr's meanderings, encounters, uh, meandering encounters establish a new celestial hierarchy wherein a peer, a friend of god, is deemed to be superior to the goddess Ganga. You might recall he tamed her, made her bring the stones. <clears throat> that same peer is equal to that is explicitly identified with the highest divinity of the Vaishnav community. The result is not just a recognition or accommodation of Hindu divinity, Hindu cosmology, and so forth, but an actual appropriation and then incorporation of it into a new Islamic cosmology. Initially, Allah seems to be the analog to any of the major deities, such as Vishnu, Shiva, Indra, and so forth, but it soon becomes apparent that he's above them all in a unique position of divinity. The Vaishnav divine hierarchy finds itself incorporated into a new structure with Allah as the supreme. Now remember Bharapir looking into the mouth of Allah, not Krishna, uh, not only demoting those Vaishnav divinities to just another set of celestial figures who have power granted to them by Allah, but because there is but one God, probably closer to a, what shall we say, a popular retelling of Ibn Arvi's al wujud, or the unity of being. Uh, probably not technically Tawhid, uh, the unity of God, for all kinds of, of technical reasons. This proposal is nearly perfectly parallel to the move made by Saeed Sultan in his 16th century life of Muhammad, the Nobibang Sho, wherein major divinities in the Hindu world are explicitly designated as prophets, Nubi, and Muhammad as avatar. The power of the peer as the supreme controller of the natural world is demonstrated over and again. Using the Madhuri method of quick transport through mystical utterance, he moves effortlessly around the country and later disappears from the jail where Badshah had him imprisoned. His command of tigers and his ability to communicate with them in ordinary speech, however, is one of the telltale marks of the powers of the peer. But in all of these displays of his Karamat, his, his personal power, he invokes the memory of Allah through zikr, or repetition of the qualities of Allah, or through remembrance, and the word is, that's used here is smaran, shoron in Bengali, the Vaishnava equivalent to jikr, the real source of his power, and it enables him to overcome every obstacle. So the power is not his, it's channeled from God. So, it's easy to see why someone schooled in the mainstream perspectives of traditional Islam would find the world of badr to be zany at best, for there is no room in those traditional constructions for other deities, however demoted, for notions of reincarnation, or the movement of time through the four yugas or ages, and so forth. It's equally easy to see how someone might interpret this as some form of syncretism, without taking into account the tale's fictional quality. Both of these responses hinge on a failure to understand what these fictions do. They allow authors to explore worlds of their own making, an exercise that is, I think, very importantly, freed from the strictures of the legislative authority of theology, law, and history laid down by the mainstream Islamic traditions. It is a way of test-driving ideas that run counter to the prevailing trends, which by virtue of this effort must not be completely satisfactory in their totalizing rejection of the Bengali world into which Islam entered. In this case, the experiments point initially to a desire to accommodate Islamic perspectives on the nature of the world, to a prevailing cosmology that is clearly generically Hindu, and more specifically Vaishnava in construction. But in the end, it demonstrates how the Hindu world can be appropriated and accommodated within a larger Muslim vision. As the adventures of Badr multiply to extend the narrative, the broad strokes of a new cosmology emerge in a grand exploration. This exploration is one of the most important functions of fiction, to investigate and invent meaning. This, by the way, is Bibi, uh, another cycle of tales in this uh, set. She is raised by tigers and rules over the Mm -hmm. Sundarun. The exercise in establishing a seeming equivalence of cosmologies and then adjusting it to reflect the real structure to be Islamic speculates and then explores ways that Islam might accommodate and incorporate a Bengali cultural legacy that is primarily Vaishnava and actually Shakto. In this world then one must rethink what conversion might actually mean, and this is a sort of uh, coda, I think. If an Islamic cosmology can be stretched to accommodate and then appropriate a Vaishnava or Shakta perspective, there would be no radical break with the prior tradition, rather simply a displacement and reordering. For while doctrine in this scenario may be only a faint impression of the rigorous prescriptions of theology and law, the general perspective of the world and on the world is preserved on both sides. In this exercise, it's possible to see how Islam might be made understandable and palatable to its Bengali audience. Then how that understanding could be subtly transformed, displaced, and then replaced by an emerging Islam, which of course is exactly what happened. The work then of these texts would seem to be a subjunctive exploration of how Musulmani and Vaishnav and even Shakta worlds might come together into a seamless whole. That is, how an Islam that was initially alien to the Bangla-speaking world could turn itself into Bengali Islam. Thanks. That, that image.